Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Uh, we're going to have our normal format tonight. We'll do our groups first and then uh, a study following that. Um, I'm trying to give a little bit more time uh, for the groups and discussion and things like that. I, my heart is, is that um, when we come here, that it wouldn't just be me ministering to you guys, but everybody kind of ministering to each other. Uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes this. He says, What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a re revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. We, we all are gifted, and God wants to use each one of us uh, to build each other up. And so I'm hoping that's what these times will be. So um, we might go a little bit slower through the book and the teaching uh, because we're spending a little bit more time uh, in the group, and I'm okay with that. So tonight I'm going to try to finish uh, Chapter 2 of Ephesians. Uh, that might not happen. We might have to uh, finish it next week, but that's okay. Um, let me go ahead and, and read the passage that we're going to look at tonight. And, uh, and then we could get in our groups and, and go through the questions. Uh, last week, we, or two weeks ago, we started this passage in verse 11. We looked at verses 11 and 12. Tonight, we're going to pick up in 13 uh, through the end of the chapter. But I'm going to go ahead and start reading in 11, because that's kind of the, the whole thought. So chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make uh, the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And that is the word of the Lord. So God, we do commit this time to you. I ask that this group time would be profitable, Lord. I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, Lord, and that you would speak truth to us from each one of us, Lord. You've gifted all of us, each one of us, as I read, has a song, has a, uh, a revelation, has something to share, Lord. And I pray that you'd give us a boldness and the ability to share that. Uh, I thank you that we get to be here. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've done. And uh, I, I pray that you'd be with us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We're going to go ahead and get started now. Um, I pray that that time was profitable for everyone. Um, it's an important topic, obviously, and uh, there's a whole lot that we talk about regarding it. Um, that's reflected in my challenge to try to get this down into one message. There's, there's a lot that could be said about this subject. Um, a couple of things, though, before we go on. This Saturday, we're having the barbecue, Andrew, uh, going away. A way to get together and to celebrate Andrew um, and God having him here and what God has for for him. That'll be over at uh, 
Yorba Regional Park. Uh, I'm going to get there pretty early to set up some stuff and start some of the cooking. Uh, so you guys are welcome to show up. I'll probably be there by 11. Uh, we're going to officially start at 1. But you could come before that if you want. That way some of the ladies want to go to the women's church, church go to that and then come over. Um, I'm going to bring burgers. I'll barbecue the meat. I'll have that. I'm asking if you can bring a, a side dish or a dessert to share. Uh, that way, plenty of food. There'll be some games to play, things like that. So I think it'll be a great time. Um, I'll send out a text Saturday morning, kind of when I get there, explaining exactly where we're at, depending on kind of availability park. Um, but I'm looking forward to that. Another thing, I mentioned this last week, we have a uh, Ryan's been such a blessing with some of the social media stuff and recording these and putting them on podcasts. And so if you miss and you want to listen to the message, and uh, we have a uh, these things that the restaurant started using during COVID. A QR code, that's what they are. Uh, one of these. So if you want to get that, if you want to be a part of it, I, I recommend. I recommend if you're on Facebook, running the group. A great way to stay in contact, stay in touch with what's going on, and you know, get the messages. You can, uh, share them, listen to them, whatever you want. But we have that. Yeah, so if you want to be a part of that, come see me. Lastly, there's still time to join the Israel trip if that's something you're interested in. July 18, 26. A little bit more affordable than the trip that the church usually takes. So if that's something you're interested in. Let me know. I'll get you some more information regarding that but now let's uh, let's get to the bible so open up to ephesians chapter 2 i'm going to go ahead and read the passage one more time and pray for us and then uh, we get into it uh, starting in uh, verse 13 paul says but now in christ jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of, the, are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, Father, I do thank you. I thank you for your revelation. I thank you that you gave us your word, that we could know you, that we could be edified, that we could be washed and cleansed, Lord. I pray that your word would go into our heart and protect us and again. You, that it would renew our mind so we wouldn't be conformed to this world but would be conformed to Christ. I pray that it would sanctify us, it would make us more like Jesus, it would set us apart from this world, Lord. And uh, and I thank you for your promise that your word will do what you've sent it for it to do. Just as the rain comes down and waters the grass and causes it to grow, it's going to have the effect that you want it to have on your people, Lord. So I acknowledge right now that I need you. I can't do anything without you. So would you be with my mouth? And my friends here need you. They can't understand this without your help, without your own Lord. So we ask for your spirit to work. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so there was a Wednesday night, probably about seven or eight years ago, and I was coming to church. I, I, I was coming here. And and I remember it was uh, I was really early. I, I got here and, and and I was coming. I was going to have dinner and I was place fellowship and I was all excited about it. But like I said, I, I came really early. I didn't even think they were 
ready to start serving the food yet. But I'm walking in through the courtyard, and I'm walking up, and, and I look over into the foyer, and I, and I see there's this, this disturbance going on, especially around the men's bathroom. And so I, I kind of go to check it out, and I see this, like, half-dressed maniac in the bathroom, like, destroying everything, like, tearing stuff off the wall and making a mess. And, and I see Pastor Maury standing there, like, like, what are we going to do, <laughs> you know? And, and, and Pastor Maury at the time was probably about 80 years old. And so I, I, I stepped in, and I, and I start trying to reason with this guy who is literally out of his mind. And, and I tell him, I'm like, hey, man, you look hungry. Like, let, let's go. I'll, I'll buy you some dinner. Let's go to Carl's Jr., right? I, I was just really trying to get him off the property. And I convinced him to go to Carl's Jr. We walk over to Carl's. Uh, we have a little bit of dinner and that. And then I tell him, I'm like, man, I, I'm sorry. I got to go back. I, I'm serving in the, the high schoolers tonight, and, and, and they need me. I got to get back there. So I left him, and I, I came back to the church, and they had the service up here. And I go to leave, and I'm, I'm walking down these stairs, and I look out. There's all these cop cars outside of the church and sirens going. And I'm just like, what in the world happened? Well, I guess while we were in this service, this guy came back and went down into the prayer room and just absolutely destroyed the prayer room. Tearing Bibles up and ripping the cupboards off the walls and just punching holes in walls and just crazy stuff. And uh, you know, it it, it uh, yeah, it was just crazy. And it happens from time to time that someone's going to come and try to deface the property of the church, going to try to vandalize the church. Usually, it's an unbeliever like this man that I'm talking about. Um, that tends to be so destructive. Uh, but these things are, are, are typically pretty rare. I, I can't think of another instance in my entire time being here at CCEA where anything like that or close to that has ever happened before. But what's far more common than outsiders coming and defacing the church is believers defacing the church from within. Now, believers don't deface the church through graffiti and damaging the property. No, it's completely different. You see, believers deface the church, deface the body of Christ through disunity, through division, through quarrel, things like that. That's how we as believers are going to, you know, disrupt or be destructive to what Christ wants the church to be. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this has been a problem for the church really since its inception. The church is always been battling disunity. In Acts chapter 6, the church has just started, and, and we're introduced to this disunity. There's a group of Hellenistic Jews, and there's a group of Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they're fighting over the, the widow's provisions at the table. And there's disunity there. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's told by the Holy Spirit, by God, to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And Peter reluctantly goes, and he's preaching the gospel, and the Spirit falls on the Gentiles, uh, on Cornelius's family, and, and, and they get saved. And, and Peter's like, hey, you know, I, I realize God's not a respecter of persons. They received the Spirit the same way we did. He baptizes them. Well, in the very next chapter, in chapter 11, the, the Jewish people, they're giving, uh, the Jewish Christians are giving Peter a hard time that he went into a Greek, uh, Gentile's house and that he preached to Cornelius. And this continued to grow all the way until chapter 15, where they had to convene a council to see, hey, what do we do about Gentile believers and Jewish believers being in the church together? And this wasn't some small thing. This went, they had to go all the way to Jerusalem. They had to get all the leaders of the church there to decide this. And, and that didn't even solve it. You read going on in the book of Acts, this continues to be a problem. In Acts 21, Paul, he's in Jerusalem, and, and, and he, he, he gets arrested. And on his way to the barracks, he's like, hey, I want to say something to the crowd. And he starts speaking to them in Hebrew, and they're following what he's saying. And then as soon as he started talking about the Gentiles, they go back to rioting and, and trying to kill Paul. That's how much animosity there was between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because in Luke chapter 4, the same thing happened to our Lord Jesus. Jesus came back from 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted of the devil in the wilderness, and he goes to Nazareth, his hometown. He walks into a synagogue, 
on a, on a Shabbat. And, and, and he opens the Isaiah scroll to Isaiah 61, and he starts preaching about the Messiah coming. And then he says today, in, in verse 21, he says, today these things have been fulfilled in your midst. And they're ecstatic. The, the people in the synagogue are celebrating. They're like, woo-hoo, yeah, Messiah has come. And then he starts talking about God ministering, God coming to the Gentiles. But being gracious and merciful to the Gentiles, and now all of a sudden their ecstasy is turned to rage. They drive Jesus out of the synagogue up the hill, and they're about to throw him off of a cliff down to the valley of Megiddo and kill him. You know, Corinth was a problem church in the New Testament. I'm sure we all know that. They were the carnal church. Paul opens up the book of 1 Corinthians saying this in verse 11 For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in Paul's name? Fast forward to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He says this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not like mere men? You know, the problems in Corinth, you read through the book of Corinthians, it's really all about division. They were divided over everything. In chapters 1 through 3, they're divided over their teachers. In chapter 5, they're divided over grace. There's this young man in the church who's actually sleeping with his stepmom, and half the church is like, yeah, this is a great thing because it shows how gracious we are, kind of like some of the liberal churches today. And other people are like, no, we need to do something about this. And they were divided over it. Paul had to give them instruction. In chapter 6, they're so divided that believer is taking believer to court in front of the, the non-believers to have their cases settled. In chapter 7, they're divided over marriage. Is marriage a good thing? Is it better to remain single? All, all of this. In chapter 8, they're divided over giving and, and, and who should be giving and what to do with money. Chapters 9 and 10, they're divided over their liberty. Can you eat meat that's sacrificed to idols or, or not? In chapter 11, their, their division is evidenced in the Lord's table. There's people that are coming early and eating all the food and getting drunk. And by the time people who actually need that food come, there's nothing left to eat. Chapters 12 through 14, this division reaches an apex concerning their spiritual gifts. And they're all divided about how to use their spiritual gifts and who's spiritual and, and, and whatnot. In chapter 15, they're divided over doctrine, specifically the doctrine of the resurrection. Some are saying, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but we're not going to rise from the dead, and uh, and things like that. And so it was leading to all kinds of wrong living and licentiousness. But they were divided. They were divided in just about every possible way. And that's because they were immature. You know, division is always, it is always the result of sin. In the body of Christ, it's a product of our immaturity. Uh, new believers or older believers who are immature, they still have a lot of their fleshly nature in them, which produces sin and division. You know, the, the story of the Tower of Babel is a great illustration of why this world we live in is so divided. It, it really explains a lot. If you look in Genesis chapter 11, uh, we can see that. Starting in verse 1, he says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, or Babylon, and they settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. That was God's will. He said, you know, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That was God's will for them, not to stay in one place. So the Lord came down 
to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Here it is, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. Now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language, so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore the name was called Babel, because the Lord had confused the language of the whole earth, and the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. You see, this: the people, after the fall, they, they were actually united. The, the whole earth was united in one thing, and that was rebelling against God. Rebelling against God to, to fill the earth and to subdue it. They wanted to stay in one place. They wanted to build a ziggurat up to heaven that could withstand the judgments of God to make sure God couldn't judge them the same way again. So God divided them. He confused their language. And since then, there's been absolutely nothing but division throughout the world. You know, Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a cursed man on a tree for sinners. On the third day, he rose again. And 40 days later, he ascended to the Father, right? That's the gospel message. But what did he accomplish by doing this? Yes, he accomplished victory over sin and over death. But it was also the beginning of a new creation. You see, Jesus makes things new. He renews things. He renews the effects of the fall. And one of those things that he's renewing, one of these things he's doing away with is sin. It's division. It's disunity. Christ brings unity. In Christ, there, there should be unity. He makes all things new. He makes us united to God and united with each other. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Now, he's not saying those distinctions are completely done away with. It's not like we're going to have genderless bathrooms at the church and, and things like that. No, he, he's saying spiritually we're all one. The, the, the things that used to keep us distinct spiritually and keep us from God are gone. We're all on the same footing at the cross. We're, we're, we're all equal. We're all one in Christ. In fact, Jesus says this unity in his body that Christ wants, that it will make the world believe that the Father has sent him. This is how the world's going to know that we belong to Christ, is that spiritual unity that's a reality for us is going to be played out in our life. It's going to come to fruition in the church. You know, Jesus in John chapter 17, he gives the real Lord's prayer. Right? We, we have in uh, Matthew chapter 6, what we call the Lord's prayer, that's really the disciples' prayer. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. He gives them a prayer for the disciples. Well, in John 17, we have the Lord's prayer. This is Jesus' prayer. This is Jesus praying to the Father for his church before he goes to the cross. It's an amazing chapter of Scripture. And in this chapter, five times he prays that his church would be united, that we would have unity. That's the theme of his prayer. In John 17, verse 20 and 21, he says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the twelve, but for those also who believe in me through their work. That's you and me. That's, that's every Christian who's ever lived, because we're all Christians based on the word of the apostles. They're the foundation. We're going to read about that in a minute. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, we reflect the nature of God, the character of God, the, when we're one. You see, because God is three persons, three distinct persons, but one essence. And those persons are distinct. They have different roles. They have different offices. They have different duties. They do different things. But they're, just, but they're, they're one. They're one essence. And the church is to be a reflection of that. We're to be many members with different gifts, different backgrounds, different offices, different roles. But we're to be one essence. We're to be of Christ. And we're to have one mind and one, you know, uh, one mission, one goal. We're to be one body. 
So Christ is the great unifier. He's the one that brings people together. You look at the church and the, just in this room, I don't think any of us would be together if it weren't for Christ. None of us would be friends with each other. None of us would be in this room together if it weren't for our, 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 our love for Jesus and our being in Jesus. We would be in different places. So Christ is the unifier. He brings people together. That is the title of our message, the great unifier. Jesus wants us united. That's what this section of Ephesians is about. Really, the book of Ephesians is about unity in the church, how Gentiles and Jews could be one in the church. The first three chapters, it's all doctrine. It's all about how God brings this mystery to pass, how Jew and Gentile are a part of the church together. In chapters four through six, it's all practical. How do we live this out? How do we live out this unity with people that are so different from us? Now, we started uh, this last week, this passage that we're looking at, or two weeks ago, and we only got through letter A. That's why those are already filled out for you guys. But I know some of you weren't here, and some of us maybe just need a refresher of verses 11 and 12. In these verses, Paul really is commanding us to remember who we were before Christ. And that the idea is, is if we remember who we were before Christ, we'll, receive, we'll realize how much mercy, how much forgiveness that the Lord has given us in Christ, and it'll be easier for us to reciprocate that mercy and grace and forgiveness with other members of the body, and thus it'll establish unity. I mentioned two weeks ago how uh, in 2020, when the Black Lives Matter riots were going on, I was watching it on TV and I was getting extremely angry. And I'm like, just do something about this. Someone needs to come and stop these people. And I was getting really mad at these people that were out rioting. And the Lord spoke to me. The Lord said, hey, why, why are you mad? He's like, if this was happening 20 years ago, you'd be doing the exact same thing. He said, I'm not mad at them. I see them as sheep without a shepherd. You see, God was reminding me of who I was before Christ and the amount of grace and mercy I needed to be in the body of Christ. And, and that made me have, be able to have compassion and sympathy for the people that were doing the very things that I used to do. But to summarize verses 11 and 12, uh, before Christ, we were without. If there's one word that could summarize what life is like outside of the church, outside of Christ, it is without. We were without Christ. We were without the benefits of God's people. We were without God's covenants and promises. We were without hope. And we were without God. We were without, and we were alienated from God and his blessings. But look at verse 13. It begins with a but now. I love that. I mean, that's similar to verse 4, right? But God, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ, Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love that. So for letter B, fill in the word reconciliation and Christ. Reconciliation. We need to remember what Christ has done. And we're going to see this in verses 13 through 18. Well, we'll take it a verse at a time. Verse 13 really is the subject of this section. The preceding verses are going to really uh, kind of expand on the fact that we've been brought near or reconciled by the blood of Christ. You know, reconciliation really is a great word. It means being brought together again. It carries the idea of going from hostility to friendship. Right? And, and that's what God has done for us, right? We were all hostile to God, Paul says in Romans 8. But now we're friends of God, and it's because of the blood of Christ. In Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul says something very similar. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and through him, I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. Now, this implies a couple of things. First, it implies that we were estranged and separated from God. We didn't always know God. We weren't always in relationship with God. We weren't always friends with God. At one time, we were estranged from God. We were far off from God. We were hostile to God. Second, we who were far off were brought near. This is Old Testament language for Jew and Gentile. You see, the Jews were considered to be near, right? Because they lived near the temple. The temple was in Judea. It was where the Jews lived. The Gentiles were far off. They lived far from the temple. They lived far from the presence of God. But because of Christ's death, we all have the same access. We're all on equal footing. If you think about it, before Abraham, there was no such thing as Jews. There was no such thing as the children of Israel. There was just people. There were just different people groups, right? And, and in a sense, that's what God did through the cross. He, he took away that distinction. Now the Jews are no closer to God than the Gentiles are. They're all on equal footing. We're all basically near. We're all in the same spot. We all need the same gospel. So Paul's going to expand on verse 13 by giving us four things that Christ did to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to himself and to each other. The first one is Christ has brought us peace. So fill in the word peace. Look at verse 14. He says, for he himself is our Peace. Jesus is our peace. In Isaiah 9, right, we have the, the prophesy, the prophecy of, of Jesus, uh, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be given or will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or to peace. Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to bring peace, is what Isaiah is saying. You know, there's really no peace apart from Christ because he was the sacrifice that propitiated, that satisfied the wrath of God, thus establishing peace. We were hostile. We were enemies. We were under God's wrath until Christ satisfied that on the cross. You see, he brought us vertical peace with God. And because we have this vertical peace with God, now we could have horizontal peace with one another. Remember at the birth of Jesus, what the angels exclaimed? They said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. You know, uh, peace is never going to be established by a law or a program. Uh, peace is found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our peacemaker. The fruit of his spirit is love, joy, and peace. It's through the spirit of God that we can experience peace. In John 16, at the very end of the upper room discourse, Jesus is giving his last will and testament, really, to his disciples. He says this, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. It's in Christ that we have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. You know, during World War II, there was these American soldiers, and they're uh, changing, exchanging fire with some German soldiers who had occupied a farmhouse. There was a family that was living in that house, and they were pretty freaked out, and they ran, and they were hiding in this barn. And as the bullets were flying back and forth between the Americans and the Germans, this little three-year-old girl, from this family got scared. She got frightened and she just ran out of the barn and right into the middle of the field uh, where these Americans and Germans were exchanging fire. And from both sides, people were yelling, cease fire, cease fire, until that little girl could be brought into safety. Now this is fascinating to me because a little child brought peace, brief as it was. In a situation that almost nothing else would have brought peace. There had been talks of priest treaties. They, they came to, to nothing. It was only this little child that could bring peace, but for that few moments. Well, Jesus Christ came to the earth as a baby, and he brought the peace. 
not a momentary ceasefire, but true and lasting peace between sinful man and a holy God. Our, our, our culture, our world, is doing all kinds of things trying to establish peace. Think about racism. What we're trying to do to, to cause peace between the racial division in our land. Right? It, 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 it's kind of silly. The best that our world could offer is reverse racism. More racism trying to, to solve racism. That's not going to work. That's just going to further divide us. But the social justice movement, it, 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 it can't bring about the justice that God wants. Only Jesus Christ could do that. Only Jesus Christ can bring peace to people who are so different. You look at Jesus' disciples. Right? We, we tend to think that they were all fishermen. And some of them were. Peter and James and Andrew were, for sure. But some of them weren't. You think about uh, Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is an interesting guy. He, he came from this group called the Zakari. And, and they were dedicated to the overthrow of the Roman government. They, they were assassins. They would go out and assassinate people that they thought were in the Roman government. Well, another one of Jesus' disciples was a guy named Matthew, Levi. He was a tax collector. He was a Jew who worked for the Roman government, collected taxes. He was considered a traitor to the Jews. And these people hated each other. This would be like having a, a, a MAGA person and an Antifa person hanging out together in the same group. But Jesus was able to bring peace to these people who were completely different to each other, than each other. These people who were hostile to each other because Jesus is the peacemaker. The Scottish commentator John Eady wrote, The cross which slew Jesus slew also the hostility between man and God. His death was the death of that animosity. So Jesus brings peace. Number two, Christ has made us one. We're going to see that in verses 14 through 16. Fill in the word one. Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He made both groups into one. That's speaking of the Jew and the Gentile. And he did that by breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall. What's that talking about? Well, the temple grounds in Jerusalem, they're huge. About 35 acres or 35 soccer fields make up the, the temple mount area, the temple ground. But don't be confused. The, the, the temple wasn't this massive building, right? No, it's, it wasn't. It was actually rather small. The rest of it was a series of courtyards that surrounded this temple. And <coughs> the temple itself uh, it was, uh, had these courtyards, and, and they were segregated based on what pedigree or, or, or that you had. Um, and it gave you greater or lesser access. For instance, the Holy of Holies, the place where God's Shekinah glory dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was in the Holy of Holies, right? And the high priest is the only one that could go in there, and he's only allowed to go in there once a year on Yom Kippur. If he went in there and did the wrong thing, uh, there was precedence that, that they'd be struck dead. So the high priest actually, would they'd put bells around his garment, and as long as they heard the bells, they knew that he was still alive. But they would also tie a rope around his foot. So if they stopped hearing the bells, no one had to go in there and try to get him out because they would be struck dead, not the high priest. So they'd be able to pull him out by the rope, right? Because only one person had access to the Holy of Holies, and that was only on one day, and they had to do it exactly the way that God prescribed it. Well, around the Holy of the Holies was the holy place, and only certain priests were allowed to enter the holy place. You actually had to be a son of Aaron. You had to be a descendant of the high priest Aaron. Now, around the holy place, was the court of the priests. This was open to all the Levites. Around the court of the priests was the court of the Hebrews. And all Hebrew men were allowed in the court of the Hebrews. Next, there was the court of women. And Jewish women were allowed to go into the court of the women. And outside of the court of the women was the court of the Gentiles. It was the, the furthest out. That was the only place where 
a Gentile could come into the, the temple grounds. Now, by the way, that's where the bazaars of Annas were, right? That's why Jesus came in and was so upset and flipped over the money tables because that area was supposed to be a place to evangelize Jews, to, I'm sorry, to evangelize Gentiles, where Gentiles could come and see God. But Jesus says that you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. You've turned it into a, super, a swap meet instead of a place of prayer. But between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there were signs posted warning Gentiles not to cross this barrier. In fact, a couple of these signs have been found. You come to Israel with us, you could see it, one of them in the David Citadel, which is in Jerusalem. But this sign, it read this, No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And hey, if you cross this line, you're going to die right now. Paul knew all about this sign. In Acts 21, he's coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And the Jews at this time, they, they really hated Paul. Right? They thought that he had abandoned Judaism, and was embracing paganism, crazy stuff. And so he's coming there, and he's trying to be sensitive to the Jewish people. In fact, he actually enters a Nazarite vow, trying to show that what he's worshiping is really the fulfillment of Judaism. He's not worshiping some completely new religion. Right? Christianity is coming out of Judaism. But there's a problem. You see, because Paul was walking around Jerusalem with his Greek companion, Trophimus. And the Jews were accusing him of bringing Trophimus past that sign, bringing him past the court of the Gentiles. And he hadn't, but they were accusing him of it anyways. And because of that, this huge riot erupted, and Paul was almost killed. In fact, if the temple police didn't come down and rescue him, he, he would have been killed. That's how seriously they took this. But when Christ died on the cross, the veil between the presence of God and the Holy of Holies was rent from top to bottom, literally, giving both Jew and Gentile access into God's presence. But figuratively, the barrier between Jew and Gentile was also destroyed. There was no more distinction spiritually between Jew and Gentile. They all had equal access. There's another story from World War II. A few American soldiers were out fighting and one of their companions were killed. And these, these guys, they wanted to provide a proper burial for their friend. So they worked all over France looking for a cemetery where they could bury their friend. Finally, they find a cemetery. They get excited. All right, we could bury your friend. They go in and start talking to the priest and said, hey, our, our buddy died in battle. We really want to bury him. Can we bury him here? The priest was like, okay, is he Catholic? And they said, no, he's Protestant. And the priest's like, ah, I'm sorry. I would love to help you, but this, this cemetery's for Catholics only. I, I can't allow you to bury him here. And so the friends, they kind of were dejected and left, and the priest went back to his room. And so the buddy said, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's do this. Let's do the next best thing, and we'll just bury him right outside the fence. And so they did that. The next day, they come back, and they want to pay some last respects to his friend, leave some flowers on his graveside, but they can't find it. They're looking all over, all around where they thought that they had buried their friend, and they can't find any dirt that had been disrupted. And so they, they, get, they, they start getting upset, and finally they go in and they ask the priest. They say, hey, you know this area better than we do. You know, we thought we buried our, fence, our, our, our friend right outside the fence, but we can't find them. And the priest goes, I couldn't sleep at all last night. The first half the night I was awake and, and I was wrestling with God because I told you that, I couldn't, that you couldn't bury your friend here. The second half of the night, I went out and I moved the fence. Can I tell you something? That's what God did for us. Through Christ, he moved the fence so that we could be welcomed into his family. So that the Gentiles could be a part of the family. Of God. In Ephesians 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul goes on to say, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might take the two, 
or make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Paul says, by abolishing his flesh, or in his flesh, the enmity, which is the law and commandment contained in ordinances. So the, the temple was definitely a barrier between Jews and Greeks, but another barrier between Jew and Gentile was the law, specifically the ceremonial law. Uh, the ceremonial law was designed really to keep the, the Jews and the Gentiles distinct. Right? God was wanting to keep his people distinct from the people around them. That's why you read some of these laws, and it seems so obscure. It's like, why would God care about that? Why would God care if they sewed two different pieces of fabric together? Well, God was making these laws so that his people would be distinct from the people around them. In Leviticus 11, verse 44 and 45, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy really means set apart, distinct. That's what God's people were supposed to be. God gave laws that would keep the children of Israel distinct, that would keep them separate. They had separate food. They couldn't eat what everybody else was eating. Right? They, they, they couldn't fellowship around the table because they had to eat distinct meals. They had to eat kosher. They had to wear separate clothes. They couldn't dress the way that everybody else was dressing. They had separate sexual ethics. And these were to ensure that they wouldn't intermarry with the people around them. They had separate worship with things like the Sabbath and festivals and feasts, and, uh, which made it hard to intermingle with those around them. See, all of these things kept them separate, kept them distinct from the Gentile nations. But on the cross, Jesus did away with the ceremonial aspects of the law, and he took the judgment for the moral aspects of the law. So the ordinances would no longer be a barrier between Jew and Gentile. All of that has been done away with. Jesus says, I came and I fulfilled the law. He perfectly fulfilled the ceremonial law. It's done away with. He took the punishment for the moral law. So the, the, that no longer separates Jew from Gentile. We could all be one in Christ. Paul says something very similar to this in Colossians 2. In verse 13, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, which he has taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The things that uh, these ceremonial laws these moral laws that we were indebted to God for breaking, were nailed to the cross with Jesus. They were done away with. Hallelujah. So the temple's no longer a barrier. The law's no longer a barrier. And our text says that Jesus took the two groups, Jew and Gentile, and made one new man out of them. You know, there's two Greek words for new. One is nos, which means new in time. The other is kainos, which means new in quality. Imagine I have a, a 2003 Prius, and I want to get a new car. Now, I could go and get the 2023, this new NOS Prius, or I could get a new kainos Tesla. Right? It, it's not just the new Prius coming off of the assembly line. No, this is a completely new quality, a completely new style a, a completely new car all together it's not just a, a new model to me it's a completely new car so jesus didn't make a way for the gentiles to join israel you know he completely created a new man called the church or the body of christ now this is an important distinction for us because 
there's going to be some people that are going to come and say, hey, to be a Christian, you got to become a Jew. But no, we're not going to allow that Judaism, those Judaizers, because it's a new man. Both Jews and Gentiles need to be converted to Christianity. It doesn't matter. We're all on the same footing. If you're outside of Christ, you're outside of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. But this doesn't mean that God's done away with the Jew. He's done away with Judaism, but God has a, a wonderful plan to restore the Jews to himself. Read Romans 9 through 11. It talks all about that. That's what the Great Tribulation's for. You could read about it in the book of Revelation, how God is going to use the awful circumstances during this awful time in history to get the people, his people, his chosen people, the Jewish people, to realize that Jesus is the Messiah and to receive him. Number three, Christ preached peace. Look at verse 17. It says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. By the way, uh, this verse, verse 17, is a quotation of Isaiah 52, 17. But it says, Christ preached peace. Now there's a debate what Paul meant about this. What does he mean that Christ preached peace? Was it in his earthly ministry that he preached peace? He certainly did that. Was it on the cross that he was preaching peace? Well, yeah. Was it in his resurrection during the 40 days on earth that he preached peace? Well, the answer is yes. Everything about Christ preaches peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, peace of heart, peace of mind. It's only Christ that could bring that peace. The interesting thing here, though, is that Jesus preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. As we already saw, he preached peace to those who were far off, which means he preached it to the Gentiles, and to those who were near, meaning the Jews. And what's interesting about this is we see that the Jews need the gospel too. You know, in my time in Israel, I've seen many pilgrims get caught up in being in the Holy Land and being with God's so-called holy people, the Jews, and they start to think that God is good with them how they are, right? They, they, they start to think that the Jews don't need the gospel, that they're going to get saved just because they're Jews. Like the child of Abraham is a, a, a one-way ticket to heaven. It's, you're born in, right? But that's not true. This couldn't be further from the truth. They need Christ as much as the Gentiles do. It doesn't matter that they were close. It doesn't matter that they had all these advantages. You know, these advantages, they're, they're supposed to be a blessing, right? Re read the first few verses of Romans 9, and you'll see that Paul is saying that, hey, these things that we had as Jews, they were supposed to be a blessing to us. But unfortunately, I found they often become the exact opposite of that. You know, people who grow up in the church or maybe have a Roman Catholic background, well, they grow up close to the truth. However, I found Satan is totally okay with people being close to the truth as long as they're not in the truth. Satan will allow us to get as, as close as possible to the truth as long as we don't actually get into the truth. He'll allow us to experience and take part in the blessings of the church and, and, and of the truth as long as we aren't actually in the truth ourselves. He'll allow us to be partakers of the Spirit of God as long as we're not possessors of the Spirit of God. The book of Hebrews was written to a bunch of Jewish believers, people who had made a profession of faith in Jesus, started joining themselves to the church, started walking with the church, but then life got hard. They get kicked out of the synagogue. They start having consequences for believing in Jesus, and a bunch of them start falling away. So the writer of Hebrews is writing, saying, hey, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than angels. You name it, Jesus is better. Well, it says this in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. 
They were partakers of the Spirit, not possessors of the Spirit. You, you know, we read in, throughout the Bible where there's people that are doing spiritual things that don't actually possess the Spirit. Jesus says, on the last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I prophesy? Didn't I do miracles in your name? Well, those are gifts of the Spirit. Those are things that the Holy Spirit does. But they weren't possessors of the Spirit. They were partakers of the Spirit. They got to experience the Spirit working. They got to see the miracles, experience the miracles, be a part of the miracles. But they were never saved. They were close, but they weren't in. You know, Jesus told the scribe, right? You're not close from the kingdom of heaven. Well, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Close isn't close enough if you're not in. So how do I know that I'm in, you ask? How do I know that I'm a possessor of the Spirit, not a partaker of the Spirit? Well, Jesus told Nicodemus, a man who was very near, by the way, that he had to be born again to see or to enter the kingdom of heaven. To be born again or to be born from above means that we've been regenerated or that the Spirit of God has taken up residence inside of us, that we are now the temple of God. Imagine this. Imagine tonight we go home, we go to bed, and while we're asleep, the president, Joe Biden, moves into our house. And he's still functioning as the president. How long when you get up in the morning is it going to take for you to know that something is different about your house? Probably not very long, right? And everything's going to be different. There's going to be secret service agents everywhere. There's going to be people coming and going, meetings, things like that. And that's the leader of the free world moving into your house. Well, how much so if the ruler of the entire universe moves into this house? It's not going to take long to notice. Things are going to start to change. Things are going to be different inside of us if we are possessors of the Spirit. Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God? Do those around you? Are you going about being a peacemaker, preaching peace to those around you the way Jesus preached peace? Number four, Christ has given us access to God. Well, in the word access, look at verse 18. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the fathers. Did you guys catch the Trinitarian language there? Through Christ we both have access through the spirit to the Father. We have the whole Trinity in that verse. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. We're all partakers of the same Spirit. We're all one in Spirit. This should create unity. But we also have access to the Father. Right? What a privilege that is. Right? What a privilege that the Holy God the one who created everything, the one who's upholding everything, that he wants to talk to us, that he wants to talk to me, that he wants to spend time with me, always. I mean, my mom doesn't even want that. My mom gets annoyed and says, get away from me. <laughs> but God doesn't. God wants me. He wants to talk to me. What a privilege. What a blessing. But how often do we neglect this blessing? How, long, how often do we neglect this privilege? How often do we neglect Fellowship with God. See, I have this friend, and he's been really sick. His health has failed him. He's been like this for a long time. And so much so that his disability ran. He's not getting any more money. He's been trying to get on Social Security disability, long-term disability. That's really hard. He's been, you know, trying to work that out and not really getting very far. Like I said, it's a, it's a very, very difficult process. But now imagine my friend, if, if he had a friend or a family member who worked for Social Security, and this person had authority to stamp approved on his case, he would run boldly into that office to get it stamped approved. But well, we have that. Whatever problem we're facing, whatever mountains in front of us, we know the one who's sovereign over that, the one who could move mountains, the one that could change everything. 
and we have access to his throne. Are we going to boldly come into his throne and let our request be known to the Lord and trust that he can and will handle these things? Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence or with boldness to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. What a privilege it is that we have access to God. So we see that Christ has done a lot to get rid of the unity, or to get rid of the disunity in the world, especially in his body. Right? And, and God isn't honored by this unity in his church. He, he wants us to be united. He says that's how the world's going to know that the Father sent him. He says in John 13 that by the way that we love one another, the world's going to know the Lord, that the Father Right, so we need to go about peace. We need to do all we can to make peace, to make unity in the body. Amen. So we'll leave a letter C for next week. There's so much to talk about on all these things. I felt like I kind of glossed over a lot of this, but that's okay. Uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we do thank you that you have made, or that you've made a way for us who were far off, to be made one with Christ, Lord. I thank you that you're bringing about peace in your body. I pray that you would help us to be peacemakers. Help us to be uh, in the business of bringing about you your church. I know that glorifies you, that honors you, that's a, a, a great witness or apologetic to this world, Lord. So, so give us that. We need your spirit to do that. Fulfill us, Lord. Help us to be on mission and just, uh, yeah, establish we love you. Put these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.